When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? Oh, today we're going into my wheelhouse. We have Gary Sheffield with us today, who's a professor of war studies um, at Wolverhampton University and author of many, many fine books on World War One, including several about Sir Douglas Haig. And that's why I've brought him on today, because uh, this rather outdated view that Haig is just a monster, um, that many people were fed many years ago now, um, and it, it hasn't really evolved as much as it should. So hi, Gary. Oh, hi, Alex. Hi, Alina. How are you doing? How's lockdown? Uh, lockdown is, is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad that this isn't uh, uh, a video uh, session because uh, you'd see my uh, pre-lockdown haircut, which I suspect would be even worse after my lockdown haircut. Are you not going to get your wife to do it? Most of my male friends have now succumbed and let their wives cut their hair. I may do, but actually I, I, I had enough foresight to go and get my hair cut the day before lockdown began. Uh, so it's not, it's not too bad, but it will be before long. Brilliant. <laughs> I want to see the results afterwards. Back to the 70s. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk about Haig. Um, just for the benefit of, say, Alina, uh, for someone who isn't a great war historian, can you just put him in context uh, as like a brief outline of his career and what qualified this man to be front and centre in the biggest war the world had ever seen as far as the British Army was concerned? All right. OK, he was uh, obviously a, a British Army officer born in 1861. Uh, he was a cavalryman by background, but actually, in spite of what many people uh, said, that's not really the defining characteristic of his career. He was, as John Terrain wrote in his, in his uh, uh, critical biography, about 40-odd years ago, uh, actually, no, closer to 50 years ago, that he was an educated soldier. He was one of the principal driving forces in reforming the British Army between the Boer War and the First World War. He went to war in August 1914 as the commander of First Corps. So in effect, 50% of the uh, British Army went to war under his command. By the end of 1915, he had emerged as the clear uh, heir apparent to Field Marshal Sir John French. And when French basically fell out of favour uh, with everybody at the end of 1915, Haig replaced him. Haig was then commander-in-chief of the British Expeditionary Force, so therefore the British Army in France and Flanders, from December 1915 through to the end of the war, in fact, until April 1919. 
commanded the British army through the biggest and most controversial battles, the Somme uh, and Third Ypres, Passchendaele, but also critically through the March offensive, the German March Offensive of 1918 and the Hundred Days Victorious uh, Battles at the end of 1918. Uh, retired in the early 20s, then had a, a, another very critical role as effectively the, uh, the leader of British ex-servicemen, uh, uh, not only British ex-servicemen ex across the empire, died in 1928, uh, a genuine national hero, and then found his uh, reputation collapsed within about five years of his death. I mean, a really abrupt collapse as a reaction set in against the First World War. And his reputation, in spite of the work of the efforts of people like John Terrain and other historians, including myself, has never fully re uh, recovered since. So why Haig? I mean, why did you choose him? Oh, uh, well, I must say I did not start off my career as the First World War historian, which I, I guess dates back to my undergraduate days. As, uh, as being particularly interested or particularly admiring of Haig. Uh, but as I studied the First World War over the years, I became, it became clear to me that Haig really had been, I think, misinterpreted by, by many historians. I actually thought that John Terrain went a bit too far in his rehabilitation of Haig, which I, th I think is probably, I think that's still about right. I, I, right. I think that, hey, that uh, my, my views rest somewhere between the sort of, you know, Haig was an idiot school and the uh, Haig was a genius school. But in the end, I guess it's, I suppose it's the equivalent of climbing Everest for, for a mountaineer. If you're a historian of Britain in the First World War, you have to tackle Haig. And, uh, and I did so, first of all, by editing his letters and diaries, along with my, my colleague, uh, uh, Professor John Bourne, and then I wrote uh, a biography of Haig, basically because at the end of doing Haig's Letters and Diaries, I realised there was still some more to say. That book, The, the Chief, came out in 2011. There was a revised edition under a slightly different title, came out in 2016. And I, I basically said, I, I said to myself I'd finished with Haig at that point. And yet another collection of Haig papers came up, uh, along with the papers of his, his nephew, Major General Hugo Dupree, they edited them, which appeared in a book at the end of last year. So, so really, I sort of stumbled across Haig, but increasingly, you know, you can't... It became clear to me, as a historian of Britain in the First World War, British Army in particular, you had to take him on at some stage. Absolutely. Um, we asked people for some questions uh, about Haig, and I think a lot of them represent what I consider to be the sort of standing misconceptions, which need to be at least in part, rehabilitated. Uh, so let's look at one from 1915. Um, I like this one because I, uh, I want to answer it too. So Paul would like to know, was Haig's role in engineering Sir John French's resignation based on personal ambition or did he have genuine cause? Um, firstly, I think, yes, he did have genuine cause. But secondly, I think his role in this, from the research I did on George V, Haig's role in this has been vastly, vastly overplayed. But you're the guest, you go for it. Uh, you, you took the words right <laughs> out of my mouth, yeah. Uh, Haig is not the main, the main man in, in, in getting rid of Sir John French. Uh, just a bit, a bit of background. Uh, French goes into the war as the commander-in-chief of the British Expeditionary Force, so therefore the man who takes the British Army to France. He is the army's probably senior active soldier. Uh, Kitchener, of course has got a quasi-political role by this stage. Um, 
by no means everybody thinks he's the bad man for the job. I'm uh, sorry, the best man for the job. Haig certainly do, does, doesn't think that. But anyway, he takes the army to France. And in 1914, he does not really cover himself in glory. Neither does he during the battles in 1915. By the time of the Battle of Luz, which has begun on the 25th of September 1915, he almost reached the point that he's got beyond his sell-by date. He doesn't uh, handle the army particularly well during Luz. There is, um, a, 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 by that stage, in fact, predating the First World War, there's been a significant breakdown of relations with Haig. Uh, but French's, I think, biggest error is actually trying to blame Haig for an error in handling the reserves, which quite clearly is the doing of French and GHQ, not Haig at First Army. But Luce really puts the skids under, under French. He has basically alienated pretty well everybody who matters by that stage. The king, uh, who I think has come to see that French... Really is not the man for the job. Kitchener, who has already had a, a very fractious relationship with um, French, but Kitchener stuck with him despite the fact he offered to offered the French to swap him for um, Sir Ian Hamilton at the end of 1914. Haig, really, he's lost any confidence in, in French, and so has uh, Sir William Robertson, who at that stage is French's chief of staff. And in many ways, he's the man who sort of keeps the wolf from the door as far as French is concerned during 1915. But at that, by that stage, Robertson is no longer prepared to defend him. So yes, Haig does, does have a role in getting rid of French. Clearly there is some ambition uh, there because he cannot but be aware, aware that he is the likely successor to French if French goes. Uh, but I, I really don't think that, that Haig is the most important figure. He's probably the least important out of all of those, oh, I would argue. That, I mean, the king decides he wants rid of him as early as July, and he doesn't talk to Haig about it for until weeks later. Um, and even then, Haig has to be solicited for an opinion. Um, the king actually had a big role in getting rid of Sir John French. Well, that 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 that's really interesting. Um, yeah, that that very much plays into into, into my um, my suspicions. One thing's worth saying actually is that French himself was directly responsible for putting Haig in the, uh, in the driving seat to replace him. Because, of course, French had got rid, he had actually sacked uh, Sir Horace Smith Dorian, the commander of, of Second Army, uh, in April 1915. The, the two men hated each other. Long uh, dispute going, going back, back many years. But Smith Dorian was senior to Haig and... Most people regarded him at that stage of the war, that is spring of 1915, as the likeliest successor if French had fallen under the proverbial bus. French got rid of uh, Smith Dorian, and therefore Haig was really the last man left standing. So it was French's fault, in a sense, that it, it was Haig that, that succeeded him. Um, Paul has a follow-up, which I really like, um, but it's, it's horrible for you. He says, can you speculate how the war would have been prosecuted if Haig had not replaced French? My answer, in short, is very badly, but you've got to do better. We, we suppose that, well, first of all, who, who else apart from Haig would have replaced French? I'm really struggling to think of anybody. Let's say General X uh, take, take, takes over. 
I think, broadly speaking, he would have had to pursue pretty similar strategy to Haig. You know, there might have been some differences, but, you know, I, mean, I don't like to say things are utterly predetermined, but it's a bit difficult to see what could have been done in 1916 other than a major British offensive alongside the French. And ev- all, everything is pointing at being in, 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 on, on, on the Somme. But of course, Haig didn't want to be on the Somme. That wasn't his decision. So you can't say it would have happened somewhere else if it wasn't Haig because, I mean, the French made that decision for us. Absolutely. And had it not been for the German attack at, at, at Verdun, the French would have left, let, let off on the Somme, not the British. The British would have been the, the senior partner. Um, if French had carried... To, 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 to read it in the question in a slightly different way, if French had carried on as CNC... Um, he would have got the push early in some point in 1916. Apart from anything else, he was quite a sick man by that stage. Um, Haig even claimed he suffered a heart attack or an attack of heart, which might not be the same thing. But he was he, he was sick he more or less continuously throughout 1915. Um, Robertson did a bit of covering for him. I can't see French having survived, you know, long into 1916, even if he'd got through the the, the loose debacle. I think this one might be just um, a touch controversial. Um, I like controversial questions. (laughs) Controversial is always good, always good. So Richard asks, why did Haig take so long to realise that longer artillery barrages were completely counterproductive? They alerted the Germans that an attack was coming and chewed up the ground the attackers had to cross. Oh, go on, Gary. Okay, well, actually, very interesting question, which is multi-layered and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll cut my, I keep my question fairly short to below two hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it, it really, this, this gets to the heart of the tactical problem on the Western front, quite apart from Haig's involvement, which I, I, I will also talk about. Okay. Well, when trench warfare set in at the end of 1914, beginning of 1915, commanders on both sides uh, and commanders at all levels had to work out ways of dealing with the problem. The central problem was that there was a temporary um, domination of the battlefield by the defensive. Uh, Both armies, or armies on both sides, I should say, discovered very early on, if you dig a long, thin, wiggly hole in the ground, a trench, uh, put some barbed wire up in front of it, put men in it, it's actually quite difficult to kill them. If you're attacking one of these trenches, however, it's very easy to kill the people who are attacking because, of course, they're exposing their body to fire, whereas the people in the trench, you have to be actually quite accurate to get uh, shell fire in, in, into the trenches. Now, the obvious way of, do, of, of, of solving this problem, or, uh, or ameliorating this problem anyway, is to use your artillery to suppress the enemy in the trenches, doesn't necessarily mean you need to kill everybody. Just make sure they keep their head down. They're not firing at the critical moments. Similar, uh, similarly, you need to fire at artillery, counter-battery fire, to keep their uh, heads down. Better off, you know, if you can drive the gunners away from their guns, they can't fire at you. So that's what they're, they're, they're trying to do. That is, the, if you like, the sort of, you know, the gold standard of gunnery that both sides are trying to achieve throughout the First World War. And in early 1915, the British launch a series of offensives and they're experimenting with different ways of doing things. So at the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle on the 10th of March 1915, they they try a very short, rapid 35-minute 
bombardment. Difference between a bombardment and barrage, by the way. Bombardment is firing lots of guns at something. Barrage is lying down, laying down a line of shells. It's, it's, a, it's a technical um, gunnery term. I think that the word, I think, entered the, the English language from French. Barrage just means barrier at, 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 at this stage. At Neuve Chapelle, they, they launch a, a rapid bombardment. It catches the Germans by surprise, enables the Brits to get forward and capture lines of trenches. They can't get any further because they're basically slow to get there. Uh, reinforcements up. That's a second major problem, that throughout the war, communications are very poor. If he really wanted to, Haig uh, could have got on the telephone net and contacted Private Baldrick in the front line via telephone. So excellent telephone system based, of course, on wire. Troops go over the top, go into no man's land, they can't take these, their radios with them because they're based on wire. Basically, if you lie, lay, lay wire across the surface, it's easily cut by shell fire. Radios are a distant glimmer in March 1915. They, they start to come in in the middle and later years of the war, but they're never terribly reliable. And the idea of a sort of two-way walkie-talkie, well, that doesn't come about until the middle of the Second World War. So what you have got is a situation whereby... It's pretty well unique in history. Uh, commanders do not have a, an easy means of communication. hundred years before, Battle of Waterloo, if Wellington or Napoleon had wanted to give orders to some units, they simply rode up in person and told them, or they sent a, a, an, an aide-de-camp. You could do that at Waterloo because it's, it's a small battlefield. It's about two and a half uh, miles uh, long. In the Second World War, if Montgomery or Zhukov or Patton or anybody wants to talk to a unit, you can get on the radio net and send out orders. You simply have no form of voice communication in the First World War. It's a war that's pretty well unique in history. So instead, all that commanders can do is issue orders beforehand and then basically let their subordinates get on with it. How do you know when the front line has been cracked? You need to feed through reserves. You need to send back runners, you know, people literally clutching uh, messages in their hand, which might take literally hours to get back and more hours to, to, to react to the uh, information, which means, of course, the fleeting opportunity has gone. Now, this is something the British learn big time at Neuve Chapelle. The rest of the armies do it roughly the same time, and they spend the next three or four years trying to cope with this conundrum. Massive artillery bombardments uh, come into vogue for the British when they try the, the, the next attack at Aubert Ridge on the 9th of, of, of May. So uh, 205, uh, sorry, 105 years on almost to the day from, from when, we're, when we're, we're talking. Um, and yet it doesn't work very well. And so they revert to big, heavy bombardments, which, as our questioner suggests, is something which endures for much of the rest of the war. So that's basically why they do big, heavy bombardments. And they are actually pretty effective on occasions. Uh, beginning, for example, take one, one at random, the beginning of the Battle of Arras uh, on the uh, 9th, 9th of April 1917 has a, a long, concentrated bombardment and actually results in the largest advances under trench warfare conditions uh, by the British Army up to that point, British and Canadian forces up to that point. So, get to the question, why did Haig take so long to realise that long, longer artillery barrages were counterproductive? I don't think he did in particular. 
Um, the armies, both armies, German and British, basically did worked out their artillery uh, tactics in parallel. Both of them came to the conclusion in late 1917, so you know, autumn 1917 onwards, that it was now possible to break away from uh, massive long artillery uh, bar uh, uh, bombardments, barrages, because of technological developments, which basically made it possible to cut them short because you could target your artillery in advance by so-called shooting off the map based on some, you know, some uh, technological uh, advances. The British did this at the first, uh, at, at the fighting at Combray on the 20th of November 1917. The Germans, of course, were able to make greater, to, to, to use this with great effect and the 21st of March 1918, the March Offensive. But really, it's, I think it's a misnomer to say the Germans did it first. The Germans simply had the strategic opportunity to use these new, attack, new, new tactics in a big, bigger strategic setup because the strategic ball was very much in their court in the spring of, uh, of 1918. So I, I don't actually think that the, the question is actually founded on... It's, 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 in a way, it's, it's comparing apples with, with, with bananas. Both armies learn more or less in parallel. Germans ahead at some stage, British ahead uh, later in the war when I think, think, think it was critical. Um, and long bombardments were experimented with by both armies at different times. Um, let's stick with the uh, spring offensives because Richard also asks, um, why did the Germans and not the British come up with techniques which allowed them to advance tens of miles in a week or two as opposed to a single mile or two? Um, my short answer is because they gambled everything because they had no choice and they end up losing. Um, but you can obviously say it much more eloquently well, than me. Um, I, mean, I agree with that, but actually also I, I disagree with the premise of the question. I don't think the Germans did come up with the tactics uh, any earlier than the British. They just uh, scaled up existing yeah. tactics, didn't yeah, they? That's right. And I kitchen mean, threw the kitchen sink at it, basically. Yeah, I mean, from early 1915 onwards, you've got the British and the French. We should not get the French, leave the French out of this, and the Germans coming up with tactics more or less in parallel. Um, the Germans call them stormtrooper tactics. You, you find, I mean, our, our view of British tactics in 1916 are dominated by um, the first day on the Somme, uh, which you had, you know, in some but not all cases, a lot of sort of long lines of men advancing in waves. Actually, later in the Somme, in fact, indeed on the 1st of July, you find the British using tactics much more akin to the ones that uh, our question is, is thinking about in the context of March 1918. Uh, in early 1917, the British launched some new tactics and indeed right doctrine around it, based around the Lewis gun, a light machine gun, uh, getting away from the wave towards what's described as the worm or the blob, basically some um, dispersed tactics in which uh, the, the light machine gun is key. Uh, and so tactically, again, there's, there's not a lot of difference between the British, French and the German armies by 1918. But as you quite rightly say, uh, Alex, that what makes a difference in, in March 1918 is the Germans carry out an incredibly risky and indeed, I would argue, foolhardy offensive, which um, succeeds up to a point. 
even on the first day, the 21st of March 1918, attacking against the weakest part of the British line. And I can talk about why it was weak later, if, if, if you like. They don't succeed in taking all their objectives. What, in effect, the Germans succeed in doing is breaking through the, um, the first German lines, sorry, the, fir the first British lines. But then they, all they've done is actually change the, uh, the problem of tactical deadlock onto an operational level. In, in really simple terms, the fact that they went tens and tens of miles is what lost them the war because the plan was to turn right and roll up the British line. And had they done that and stuck to their plan, it may have worked. But what they did was essentially keep going and going over useless tens of miles that wasn't well, yeah. really a strategic or tactical gain. Well, I, th um, I think what they do wrong is failing to target dreadful term communications nodes uh, like uh, Osbrook and, uh, and, and Amiens, if they capture those, basically the British can't move stuff up and down the front or reinforce. No, I mean, the, the, the real problem is in, in, in 1950, 1916, armies can break through the first two lines of trenches and get stuck against the third. In 1918, the Germans break through the first German uh, British positions. They then advance and just keep going and keep going until they hit the next lines some miles in the rear. And they run out of steam. In doing so. The difference is, uh, compared to what the British and the French and the Americans and the other allies are doing in uh, autumn 1918 in, in, in the Hundred Days, is whereas the Allies succeed in breaking through the German lines, they would advance for, I don't know, maybe five, six, seven, eight, ten miles, stop, allow the logistics to catch up, switch the point of the offensive to somewhere else, attack again, stop, and then do it up and down the line um, in such a way that the Germans are always responding. They're never able to initiate. Now, the Allies are able to do this in the summer and autumn of 1918 because their logistics and their communications, as in railways and roads and what have you, have improved to such a dramatic extent. And they have vast quantities of material. They simply could not have done that a year or two years or three years earlier. So the Germans allegedly have this you know, genius for war. Well, I don't think we see much of it in 19, 1918. The Germans make all the wrong choices. They throw away their chances of victory, which is not very great to start with. The Allies make the right, right choices and they win. Not a spectacular breakthrough victory, actually, which is the sort that Douglas Haig wanted, but they win a, a really efficient, if you like, war manager's victory of applying masses of firepower at the right place at the right time and grinding the Germans down in a series of battles of attrition. And there's a question, another one question finally from Richard. He asks, did Haig give away the secret of the tank in order to have a minor success and save his job? Well, the short answer is no. That was easy. Well, I suppose I better say so. <laughs> <laughs> Let's expand just a little bit. Okay. Um, there's, again, there's a huge amount of mythology about the tank. I mean, I mean, um, actually, I should say actually, a lot of these questions. Uh, I, I apologise to, to Richard. He seems to have read a lot of quite elderly material. Um, these sorts of, of, of things have been dealt with. They're basically myths which have been debunked pretty comprehensive after like, over the last twenty or thirty years. So maybe he's just been reading, reading some older books. Yeah, um, this is uh, very much sort of the the sixties to eighties perception, isn't it? Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It, 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 it is. And, and there's all sorts of good, good, good books which actually sort of do, do away with these ideas. Okay, um, the tank was not a war-winning weapon in 1918. And in 1918, it was a lot better than it had been in 1916. The 1916 tank is a slow, unreliable beast, uh, which is not going to win the war for anybody. Um, I think Haig is perfectly justified in using this weapon, which is gradually integrated into the broader weapon system. To say that Haig you know, shouldn't have used the tank because he's giving away the secret in 1916, it's a bit like saying he shouldn't have used a Lewis gun, he shouldn't have used a trench mortar. Well, no, no, though these are all weapons which are not war-winning on their own, put together and fitted into the broader weapon system, actually they can work quite well. And on, on um, 15th of September 1916, when they first used the Battle of fleur Corselet, which is part of the Battle of the Somme, tanks don't do too badly. Um, you know, they're mishandled in some areas. In other areas, they, they, they coordinate quite well with the infantry and, and the artillery. You're never going to get more than about a mile of advance across a sort of mile of, of, of a front of about three or four miles, which is actually what they get. So I don't think tank, tanks too badly. And the other point is there, is there is no sense, at least I've not gathered any sense, that Haig's job is under any sort of threat. In, in, uh, in this stage of, of, of the war. Yeah, there, there are a few people who would like to get shot of him, Winston Churchill being one of them. He's picking up a few rumours, but really his political situ situation at home is very strong. The time, incidentally, when his job is most under threat, ironically enough, is uh, in the aftermath of the Battle of Combray. And there he's a victim, I think, of uh, heightened expectations. The British, of course do very well at the beginning of the Battle of Combray, beginning on the 20th of November. The church bells are rung in England. Um, tanks do achieve some sort of a breakthrough. And then, of course, what happens is the, the, the attack winds down for all sorts of reasons. Germans counterattack. They actually take back most of the ground they've taken, and the British have taken, and a bit more. And a real reaction sets in, not least because Haig loses support of some key sections of the press at this stage. That is the point at which Haig is vulnerable to being sacked, not in September 1916. Um, I really like this next question because you can well and truly uh, stamp it home. Um, this is from David uh, and he says, is there anything Haig could have done to end the war quicker? Well, some historians would, would probably say yes, resign, 
but uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm not one of them. Uh, no, I, I think that the war ended when it ended, basically because Germany was, paved, was facing what today we'd call a perfect storm. That it was suffering a cataclysmic defeat on the Western Front, basically because the reasons I've already given, because the, in effect, the Allied armies under Marshal Foch uh, have seriously got their act together at a tactical, operational and strategic uh, levels. They are facing breakdown on the home front, which is starting to open up into full-blown revolution by October and November. Uh, the Spanish flu influenza research I've seen suggests that it hits Germany, or at least the German armed forces, disproportionately uh, badly compared to the Allies. Its allies, um, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, Ottoman Empire, are collapse, collapsing about their ears. Um, Germany basically has reached a political, military and health crisis at the same time, and everything is starting to fall apart. I suppose we could rewrite history and bring it forward by a few months if you say certain other things uh, uh, change. So, for example, if the United States enters the war a bit earlier, uh, I think it's difficult to conceive of Hague or indeed any one individual coming up with something which could make the First World War end any earlier than it actually did. And incidentally, uh, an unexpected spin-off of the Somme, I think, is US entry into the war. Because at the end of the Battle of the Somme, which I'm not trying to downplay its bloodiness or, or indeed the, the, the clumsiness of the British methods, and the British armies are not terribly well trained at this stage, but the Germans are genuinely shocked by what the British army manages to do. I, I've, I've likened this to uh, a very strong but not terribly well-trained boxer, sort of, sort of apprentice boxer, landing a sort of body blow on the enemy. It really knocks the breath out of the Germans. The Germans, uh, Lind uh, Hindenburg and Ludendorff in particular, are not keen to go in for a second bout of this sort of attritional bloodletting. So they look for a different solution. They go for unrestricted submarine warfare. In other words, they hope to sink enough merchant ships to starve Britain to submission. They know that's going to bring the United States in the war. Their gamble is they can defeat the British uh, by naval means before the Americans can bring enough manpower to bear on the Western Front, and they fail. So the Somme uh, is indirectly and in very important reason for bringing the United States into the war, and even more directly, but part of the chain of causation, the Somme, I think, can, we can see as part of the reasons why Germany loses the war in November 1916, no, no, no November 1918. Absolutely. I was about to say, am I the only one that messes up with dates? <laughs> I do it all the time. It's one of my basic problems as a, as a, as a history professor, as I get dates wrong. <laughs> and, well, for me, it's names as well, and Alex likes to poke fun at me when I do that, but that's, uh, that's just me. But we've got another question. This one, I like this one. Uh, it's from Bagus. So General Pershing said about Haig, that man won the war. What did other British generals think of him? Also, what were the opinions of the French and the Germans? Well, I think if, if Pershing did say that, he was wrong. He was one of the men who won the war. He was quite an important one. But, you know, I, I, I think we, we can't actually put it down to, to one individual uh, man, man, man winning, winning the war. What do other British generals think of him? 
uh, Haig was, I think, uh, seen by his peers before the war as very much the coming man. There's this sort of idea that Haig sort of bought his way to the top by being friendly with the king. You know, he, oh, he wasn't even friends with George V before the not. war. I mean, his, his, yeah. his friendship was with Edward VII. Yeah. Um, uh, of course, he married the, 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 the Queen's, uh, Queen Alexandra's late, 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 late lady in waiting. Uh, of course, people tend to forget, you know, you know he said, you know, where he got hate, he got royal favour because of his marriage. Well, of course, he must have had royal favour to meet the Queen's lady in waiting at a, at a, at a, at a royal, royal bash to, to, to start with. But anyway, but Haig, Haig really made his reputation during the Boer War. By 1902, 1903 period, uh, Haig was very much seen as being one of the coming men in the army. One of my previous jobs, actually, I was the, in effect, the army senior historian, the senior historian on the high command staff course. And, and I saw people like Haig, uh, in the sense of people who were recognised by their peers as, as people are going places. You know, some of the people at the top today, I, I, I know them going back 20 years, I can see the way that they, they were regarded. During the war itself, um, almost nobody thought that Haig was the wrong man to replace French at the end of 1915. A couple of people didn't like him, but most people, if they didn't like him, respected him. And while the war was going on, there was never a sort of crown prince, someone, an heir apparent to replace Haig, as Haig had been to replace French. In the spring of 1918, when um, Haig's stock was fairly low with the, with the politicians, especially with Lloyd George, uh, Ugh, let's not even go into their interfering at that point. Indeed not. But yeah. <laughs> and Hanky were sent out to the Western Front and basically tasked, can you find someone who's a credible replacement for Haig? They came back, the answer was no. In fact, they suggested Claude Jacob, who was a mere corps commander at the time, but that wasn't really a sensible suggestion. So you know, Haig was regarded as being, you know, uh, uh, first among equals among British generals. French, the, the, the French, I should say, um, they had a few moments with him. Of course, uh, uh, Nivelle tried to put him under uh, French command in 1917 with, with Lloyd George's uh, uh, connivance. Probably, people, promptly lasted 12 weeks himself before getting punted out. Well, that absolutely did. And of course, the, of course the, the key players were Foch, uh, sorry, so Joffre in 1915, 1916, had quite a sort of prickly relationship, but they but they respected each other, and I think I think uh, uh, Joffre and, and Haig ultimately thought they were you know on the same team. And Foch now uh, uh, the Foch Haig relationship in nineteen eighteen is really important because they went back a long way. They had actually cooperated together as far back as the first Battle of Ypres in October November nineteen fourteen, again on the Somme in nineteen sixteen, and. Um, Haig was, I think, very supportive of Foch becoming, in effect, the, the Allied Supreme Commander. He hadn't wanted Allied Supreme Commander until he realised the French and British armies might be driven apart, and then suddenly he came all in favour. And I think Haig's, not, not the least of Haig's importance in 1918, is that he is in the de facto senior lieutenant to, um, to Foch. Foch is well aware of the frailties of the French army by that stage. French army does some good stuff in 100 days, but increasingly he looks to Haig to deliver 
the, uh, the hammer blows on the Western Front. The two mean men don't by all means always see eye to eye, but basically the two men cooperate pretty effectively. They make a good team in winning the war. Germans, um, well, I must say I wouldn't claim to be an expert on this, but the little I know suggests that the Germans thought quite highly of Haig. They didn't think of Haig as a particularly skillful or, 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 or tactically successful general. One of them called him the bull, as in, you know, bull in a china shop, but he was a deeply attritional general, and in the end he delivered victory. And I so vaguely he, remember seeing something by one of the German higher-ups that sort of said... Um, they didn't understand why the British didn't value him enough during the in the years after the First World War. That's 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 that's, that's, that's right. And the, you you do find various German generals making you know fairly complimentary comments. Again, not so much about Haig's skill, but as the man he had the sort of grit and determination, and was I mean utterly ruthless in pursuing attrition. In the end, it was attrition that defeated the Germans. Um, this question is great as well because I really do think there's a distinction. Objective D-Day asks, is Haig a misunderstood leader or merely a misrepresented leader in World War I history books? Well, both, I think. Uh, um, here I would make a distinction between scholarly and popular history. Now, straight away, I'm going to sort of undo what I've just said by saying that in my mind, I think the real division is not between popular history books and scholarly history books. It's between good history books and bad history books. There are some really, really bad popular histories of the First World War, and there's pretty, some pretty terrible academic histories as well. And so it's people who get it right, I think, is what we're talking about. People who get it right, uh, whether scholarly or popular historians, tend to see Haig for what he is, which is actually, I think, a a warts and all commander. Uh, by no means is the, the genius that some people would have you have, uh, have you believe. By no means is the, the complete buffoon either. He's somewhere in between, but ultimately I think he's a successful commander and it's difficult to argue with success. Is he misrepresented? Well, I think sometimes actually he is. Um, so many myths swish around which despite the fact you know people like me and and various other historians before me people like John Terrain and Corelli Barnett have tried to sort of do do away with uh, there's a wonderful book which I if I can see I'll pull it off my shelf um it's called zombie myths um and I can't find it so I'll probably have to chop this bit can I go back okay. to that one again yeah um there's a wonderful uh book uh, published by an Australian historian, I'm looking on my shelf and can't see it, but it doesn't matter, called Zombie Myths. The idea of the, you, no matter how many times you kill uh, a myth, it pops up again. Well, one of these is that Haig was um, anti-air power, that before the war he supposedly said the air power was a mere powered kite which will have no future in warfare. That is absolutely untrue. There is plenty of documentary evidence that actually he was thinking about air power well before the First World War. And while, and while the First World War was going on, he was an active proponent of air power, a real supporter of the Royal Flying Corps, later the Royal Air Force. Got on very well with Trenchard, didn't he? He got on very well with Trenchard. And Trenchard thought the world of Hague. Where does this myth come from? It comes from one of uh, Trenchard's contemporaries, Frederick Sykes, who basically had a, an axe to grind because 
Trenchard, well, Haig basically championed Trenchard rather than him, published a book in 1942, trotting out all of these basically made up lies, which are repeated in some, you know, really respectable books by historians who should know otherwise. And they're simply untrue. The other one, if I could just briefly say that gets shot out time and time again, Haig was an opponent of the machine gun. He said that it's a most overrated weapon. Two per, per battalion is more than, more than enough. Again, absolutely untrue. We have documentary evidence which, which dates from before the First World War and from the First World War to prove it. Where's it come from? It comes from somebody else who was disgruntled. Uh, 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 C.D. Baker Carr, a man whose ideas for machine gun organisation were ignored by Haig uh, in favour of someone else's. And so he took, again, posthumous revenge on Haig. Haig was, was dead by the time he wrote his book and come up with this, with this farrago of nonsense that's been repeated time and time again. So zombie myths, you shoot them down, they climb back up again. That's why I think our, our question is right. I think Haig is not merely a, a misunderstood leader, He's a misrepresented leader. Uh, and no matter how many times I and other people like me write, say this is wrong, people still prefer to go for the old mythical view of Haig than one found in, uh, in objective reality. Now, I should actually say there are some very good historians out there. I'll mention two who, are, uh, who, are, who I admire very strongly. And one is a good friend of mine, Robin Pryor, who doesn't take such a glowing view of Haig as I do, it's perfectly possible to, to, to disagree with my views on Haig. Um, but please come to these conclusions after studying the evidence rather than basing it on, on myths. Um, I was going to ask you, um, I've been doing some archival work on Haig's papers as well. And I think perhaps what surprised me most was uh, his sensitivity. Um, that was something I, I just didn't suppose didn't even think about let alone thought wasn't there um but how sensitive he is um he, really he, surprised me what surprised you most about Haig when you were researching him um okay well I'll, I'll pick up on that point of your sensitivity uh it's been well described as the mask of command uh that uh, you need to have a commander a high commander in war needs to have a resilience to the mental pressures of you knowing you're sending men and these days women into battle to be wounded and possibly killed. Mm -hmm. uh, Wavell in his uh, Lee Snow's lecture on lectures on generalship just before the second world war made a big, big thing of this. And I think it's very applicable to Haig. Haig actually was a man who was quite sensitive, but he had this, ability to distance himself from the decisions that he was making and the few occasions in which an individual death an individual tragedy came home to to him he was clearly deeply affected by it uh, one of these occasions came in uh, august 1918 george black geordie black who was a 17th lancer that was haig's regiment uh, he had been on Haig's staff as an ADC for, for two years. And of course, uh, George Black chafed at basically, you know, carrying the general's briefcase. He wants to go out and fight. And in the end, after nagging away at Haig, Haig gave him permission to go off and he joined the tank corps and he was killed. And when Haig got the news, he was, he was 
he was shattered. He, he really took it very, very badly. Of course, he recovered. He, um, he, he pulled himself together. But for a brief moment, the mask of command slipped. Um, now, now, one you know, can sort of say this is sort of you know, dreadful that a man is able to distance himself from doing this, from doing this job in such a way. Well, it depends on, on your views. Of, of You'd what. go nuts if you didn't. You would. And, and You'd go nuts if you considered the individual every individual that you were sending into battle every day you you would lose your mind i think that, i think that's absolutely right i think that that haig's way of coping with this is to to distance himself from it now some people would say well haig was not sensitive enough to casualties and that's you know that's that <coughs> that's not something i can i can really argue against it is a mindset it's a total war mindset I personally find it incomprehensible. I suspect most of us will. But of course, he was not the only person at the time who had it. The other thing which come out actually of this of my, my recent book, um, uh, which I'll advertise, it's called In, In Haig's Shadow, uh, edited by me. It's the letters of uh, Hugo Dupree and Douglas Haig. What comes out of that was Haig's family hinterland, if I can put it like that. Now, we've known for, for many years that Haig's family because his wife was much younger than he was and he had a young family i mean um, he became a father again right before the german offensives in 1918 how many people know that she had literally just given birth to a baby boy that's right uh, uh doik haig uh who the, the second earl haig who died about 10 years ago was born in uh, in Mar march 1918 well we, we've known for a long time his family's very important to him but the letters that i uncovered or rather uh, the Hague family or and Dupree family made, made available to me shows the importance of his wider family, particularly uh, Ruth Dupree, who was his uh, his niece, and I, I should say Hugo Dupree, so Douglas Hague's nephew's sister-in-law. Now, clearly, Ruth was uh, Douglas Hague's favourite niece, and she wrote to him throughout the war, and he replied. There's a lot of sort of um, family chit chat. And we find himself being quite nostalgic about his childhood. And he so becomes very Scottish. Now, Haig you know, obviously was a Scot, but doesn't really come across as a particularly Scottish individual. In these letters, he does. I mean, he uses, um, you know, sort of Scots phraseology. He puts it in inverted colleges. Quite obviously, he's, he's doing it for, for effect. And we suddenly see the importance of things like her sending Finn and Haddocks and, and I think, uh, uh, Berwick Cockles, which are sort of, uh, sort of sweets, Particular sort of sweets out out to him, um, and occasionally the um, again the mask drops. He not even in his diary, which of course is partly intended to influence opinion. So he doesn't put very much of himself in it. But sometimes in his letters the mask slips. So at one point, I think it's in September 1916, he writes to Ruth, and he says, uh, "Effectively, I, I'm sorry I haven't written very much." Um, my days have been very busy and sometimes full of anxiety. That's as close as you get to him admitting this is a very, very stressful job. You know, there was one, there's one moment in his letters to his wife, which I love, and that is that Haig's a very traditional man and a very traditional husband. Um, but he kind of passes a lot of their financial dealings over to her when he goes to war. Um, and how utterly delighted he is that she appears to be very, very good at budgeting um, and starts getting their overdraft down. And he's so proud of her. Um, and this is a guy who has to be like the alpha male every day of his working life. Um, 
and yet on the flip side he's just utterly des delighted that he's got this wonderfully competent wife um who's taken over the family finances so he can get on with it i thought that was very sweet actually, that, that, actually that's that, that, that's 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 a a, a a very good point well actually no during the war you find the family trying to filter out people who want to sort of give him you know difficult things to deal with or try to sort of you know get his ear and uh, and they're, they're they're very careful to try and insulate uh, douglas from from everything that's going on domestically by the way i've just pulled that book off my shelf which i mentioned earlier uh, it's, it's really interesting called zombie myths of australian history the 10 myths that will not die edited by craig stockings and it includes uh, some some really good stuff like one by craig stockings himself there was an idea that the Australian is a born soldier, one of those zombie myths which are, no matter how many times you shoot down, clamber back up again. Um, yeah, well, I, mm, I've seen some of the, uh, you know, there's those medical records. They kept a, a cadre of the medical records for the casualty clearing stations. And uh, I was surprised to see a whole separate entry book for cases um, of Australian self-inflicted wounds because of course they didn't have the death sentence so yeah. you didn't pay the ultimate price if you decided to stab yourself with your own bayonet or shoot yourself in the foot um, so yeah I'd, I'd love to read that book I think we might have to get him on uh, 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 Craig, Craig, Craig's a good guy it's well, well, well worth get, get, getting, getting in touch with him yeah uh, but back to it's a self-inflicted wounds yeah I mean because um, Hagen his diaries mentions I think it's in 1917 he compares the the, the uh, statistics for indiscipline in discipline basically i think you know uh soldiers in jail effectively and of course australians are massively higher than everybody else the canadians canadians the kiwis and the brits and i'm pretty convinced it's lack of the death penalty is a mm. very sizable factor in that it's quite funny watching his correspondence with the king as well because um after the sort of unsavory events in cairo um when the australians are there the king quite pointedly is is keen that they uh they are kept an eye on um so or just at least made to focus on the job at hand and not given a, a chance to do that again and mm -hmm. haig writes in one letter where he says it's okay i've found a sector to put them in where there's hardly any temptation at all so <laughs> it sounds like you've seen some haig letters to king i haven't because i did i did some work in the royal archives but i don't remember seeing that one. Oh well we'll talk <laughs> i have to remember where that exact quote came from but yeah it's in my notes gary thanks so much for coming on and at least uh giving people the beginnings in such a short time of um a look into why we shouldn't perhaps just accept everything that we read about douglas haig especially stuff that was uh produced um prior to the last 20 years perhaps at face value and see that there are some motivations behind it and there is sort of if you like a snowballing campaign of trying to detract from his achievements but as ever there's checks and balances isn't there and it's the answer lies somewhere in between indeed yes my my mantra on not only on douglas haig but on the first war in general it's is it's all a lot more complicated than people think yeah, and as historians, it's basically our job never to give anyone a straight answer. So <laughs> it will never be a problem with World War One. But thanks very much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me on. I'd be delighted to come on and talk about something else some point in the future. Brilliant. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to David Davis. I am so excited because I'm trying to get him on for ages and he was really busy finishing a book. But he is the daddy of 17th century naval affairs and he's come on to talk to us all about Charles II's Navy and how it was the beginning of the Royal Navy's dominance really that we saw in Nelson's time and afterwards. 
don't forget you can become a patron of history hack for as little as one dollar a month all you have to do is go to www.historyhack.podbean.com we could do with some new equipment to make our sound better and we'd really like to keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis we've got lots of plans lots of ideas but we need your help so it would be much appreciated there now follows a public service announcement i'm horatia hornblower and i'm archie kennedy the simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.